Welcome health enthusiasts. You're tuned to Health Unabashed on Healthcare Now Radio, your one-stop shop for all things health, wellness, and innovation. We're here to shake up the status quo in health, making it sustainable, equitable, and oh-so-patient-centric. I'm Greg Masters, your co-host and executive producer, and I am joined by the digital health aficionado himself, author, global thought leader, and might I add in his executive capacity, Stuart Servant, Gil Bash. On today's menu, Gil chats with Rush-based and board-certified in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, critical care medicine, and sleep medicine, Dr. Hesham A. Hasabala, fellow of the American College of Physicians and author of How Not to Kill Someone in the ICU, a practical guide for successful rotation or career in the intensive care unit. Dr. Hasabala has a strong interest in the integration of spirituality and medicine. He is the author of several books, including The Believer's Guide to Ramadan and The Belief Net Guide to Islam. His writings have been featured in various publications, including the Huffington Post, Chicago Tribune, and Washington Post. So with no further delay, Gil, the mic is yours. Greg, I want to thank you for the gracious introduction for uh, for myself and for our very special guest, Dr. Hesham Hasabala. And um, it's really a privilege to have this guest, but I'm thinking of you, my friend, and again, you're making this show happen. We're obviously speaking to um, one of the nation's great uh, ICU intensivist physicians, um, an author of articles, of books, uh, a healer, a spiritual leader. And I know that um, all those things touch your heart and your family's heart right now. So thank you, as always, for being the co-host and executive producer of Health Unabashed on Healthcare Now Radio. And again, as I mentioned to our our listeners, we have really an incredible guest today. He's he's just published a a very important book, um, which we're going to talk about as well. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Dr. Hasabala and uh, or Hesh, as I call him, as a friend. Um, We've known each other for a few years. We're co-authors and co-editors of a platform called Medica with a K Life. You can find it at at, uh, medica.life online, tremendous content. Um, uh, Dr. Hasabala has just written a very um, compelling, important article about uh, reduced Medicare reimbursement and what that means for the practice of medicine and for patient care. That's his passion. Um, And you're going to find out as we talk over the next um, um, 20, 25 minutes or so, you're going to find out just how much Hesh cares about about you, about you and patients. Um, Dr. Hasabala is a, as I mentioned, he's a, a senior, uh, a senior physician in the area of ICU with with Rush Presbyterian out in Chicago. Uh, it's one of the great great medical centers of our nation. Um, he is really a frontline healer. He's dealing with people in the most difficult areas. I also want to remind people that while we think that COVID's behind us. Uh, we're in this peri-COVID stage, and and Hesh worked for more than two years, geared up every day, pretty much going into the hospital system, treating patients who were really quite ill when you're in, in the ICU, often uh, intubated, intubated, 
uh, re relying really on external support. And he and his team were on the front lines of care, putting their own lives at risk, their own health and lives at risk for months and months and months. Um, in my communication with him, he never complained. He never questioned. Um, he always sought to represent the well-being of the patients under his care and the science that was available at the time. Uh, Hesh, I want to salute you. That period has not escaped me, and I think many people, you really are a frontline healer, not just during the COVID-19 period, but every day that you go and do your work. I also want to share with people something sad about um, Hesham and, and the Hasabala's family's life that uh, has, has shifted his mindset as a healer, and that was the, the loss, the death of your daughter, your young daughter, um, which is still very much part of your your life and your family's life. And I, I'm actually going to start off there, Hesh. I hope you don't mind before we get to the book. Uh, you know, you go to medical school. Um, doctors, they always joke around that that, uh, that that great joke about, you know, two people online to get into heaven and a man is skirting the line wearing a white coat with a stethoscope around his neck. And, and one guy says to the other guy, he says, who does he think he is they say that's god he thinks he's a doctor and um and and what we remember from that though is um doctors while it's a very esteemed important position are are people and and life touches them sometimes very profoundly wonder if you could reflect on that that period of your life hesh and, and talk about how it impacts you as a physician absolutely thank you uh, gil thank you uh, greg for having me this is such an honor to be here I truly appreciate the both of you and uh, you're having me on this platform, this uh, very distinguished platform. Um, you know, I knew my, when she was so back off, I was in residency uh, when we knew something was wrong uh, with her. She was just was not balancing normal. Something was not right, especially after the, the death of the, the birth of our second child, my now oldest child. So we went to various physicians. They told me different things. No one really knew what was going on until I went to Rush, a pediatric neurology specialist at Rush, and um, she knew right away. And she made the diagnosis of, which was she, she had what was called ataxia telangiectasia, which is a disorder that is progressively deteriorating. Uh, it uh, it uh, affected her ability to walk because the cerebellum, part of the brain that deals with our balance, uh, progressively deteriorated and it affected her immune system to, to a degree where she had chronic infections. These kids, because of the chronic immune system, uh, immune system dysfunction are at risk of getting cancer. And so it was on my radar that she could at some point develop a, a lymphoma or some sort of uh, blood cancer. And in fact, she did, she got lymphoma. Um, we went with chemotherapy for six months, it was really very difficult in her. And then under, after her last round, everything went wrong. And then she got an infection and to, within 24 hours, she was dead. So I knew way back when she was diagnosed that one day I was likely to bury her. I mean, I knew it, but I put that out of my mind and I, I said, I'm going to live every day in the moment and I'm going to enjoy every single day in the moment. And we did. We had wonderful times, even in the hospital when she was sick. So. Um, but losing a child um, doesn't have a word in any language. 
there's a widow, there's a widower, there's an orphan, uh, but there's no word that describes a parent having buried their child because it's indescribable. You can't, nobody, nobody understands the horror of losing a child unless they've done it, unless they've been through it. Um, and it's, it's, it's the, the, the anguish. I'm thinking of you, Hesh, and I'm thinking also of, uh, obviously, the person really at the keyboard right now, now Greg Masters, co-host and executive producer, and has just gone through this very recently, and it, it's hard to separate from that. And I think your words are particularly comforting to to Greg, and I want to thank you for that. I'm curious, I'm curious, you, you, you're, you're really on the front lines of care. I mean, the ICU is is not a casual ward. It's not like post-surgery, not post-surgery. You know, it's, um, you know, it's it's a very different type of patient. And I, I, I was just wondering, having gone through the experience you did as a resident initially, and now here you are, um, a very senior level clinician um, in the department of the I, ICU. How is how has that personal experience impacted your approach to medicine in the ICU? I think it's uh, enhanced uh, my practice um, because I really understand what they're going. You know, in the book, I talk about be careful when you say I understand, because do you really? I mean, we clinicians we we want to try to empathize and, and feel for our patients, and when we say, "Hey, I understand." Do you really understand? Do you really understand what it's like to have diabetes and come in with multiple episodes of diabetic ketoacidosis to the ICU? Do you really understand what it's like to have cancer and go through chemotherapy and then getting an infection and coming to the ICU? Do you really understand what it's like to be a parent of a child who committed suicide? I mean, I I saw the anguish of this parent when she was with her child who attempted suicide. And I reached out to her and I told her, listen, I lost a child. I know what you're going through. And she said, you know, she, she told me, nobody rallies to me for mental illness. Everyone rallies to cancer. No one rallies to mental illness, right? There are no, no and, and I just, you, you, it helps me understand what they're going through. And I, and I tell them, listen, I get it. I lost a child. I know. And it's, created it's allowed me to have a bond with especially families because a lot of times the patients are ill they can't interact with me but they're families and they really understand that this doctor really does know what they're going through he really understands the anguish that they're feeling and i have shared that story almost every time if not every time i sit with families to let them understand i do i get it i've been here and it's helped i've helped get families to a place where they know that continued aggressive care in the intensive care unit is inconsistent with their loved ones values and preferences that they understand deep down that they were that they would not want this mm -hmm. and what because i've been there and i tell them there's no way i would have my daughter live on a ventilator the, re yeah. the rest of it yeah so really so helps. it really helps us connect so I think he continues to do good well after her death. I wanted to shift. You mentioned the book, of course, How Not to Kill Someone in the ICU. It's available now, by the way. Everybody's welcome to go to Amazon and 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 read this book. I was privileged to to look at this book at the earliest stages in um, in manuscript form. And 
Now, felt as as you obviously did, Hesh, because you you made sure it's available. Now, I felt this was a book that needed to be published. Um, you know, it's it's the perspectives of an ICU physician on the front lines of care and are dealing with these issues every day. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the fact that you you have been an author. I mean, you've been writing uh, articles and very compelling writers. You're you're an amazing writer. Um, and um, I enjoy, you know, reading your pieces. They're they're timely and uh, quite bluntly um, for the, for the health system, for policymakers, for payers, for hospital administrators. Not always comfortable pieces. You, you tend to tell it as it is. What what was the genesis behind your saying? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna publish a book. Uh, I've been writing for more than two decades um, in various different arenas, and I think. Writing for me is cathartic. Writing for me is therapeutic. I mean, uh, the Lord saved my life. I, I mean that with every sincerity of every word through my writing, that it helped me process the horror of my daughter's death. And I don't, I've written everything I could write now, right? And, uh, and so writing for me has been therapeutic. It's, and then what I love about writing is that it keeps me honest because if I write it down, I have to live it. Right. It's the same like as a as a preacher. If I preach if I preach about it from the pulpit, I have to live it. Otherwise, I'm not going to preach about it. All right. So writing have always been part of what who I am and what I do. And so th throughout the if I feel like something, I write about it. It just helps me express that. And I want to share with it with with fellow human beings about how I feel about things um, and uh, maybe move the needle. Right. To speak out against things that are wrong. Um, explain things that are maybe not not as clear uh the pandemic i mean it helped me process the horrors that we saw during the pandemic i mean there were things that we saw that it cannot be unseen there are things that we went through that cannot be unforgotten or that cannot be forgotten right so um that that it 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 it, it helped me i mean the uh, my we lost we buried our daughter on a monday thursday i was working uh in a remote icu and I, as soon as I sat down at the computer, I said, after I took care of all my patient care stuff, I said, I have to write something. I have to. And before I knew it, it was, I don't know, several pages uh, that I that I posted. And I didn't even, even tell anybody. I just put it, I just put it out there. And people, most, multiple people came out to me and told me, we read what you posted about your daughter. Um, we read what you posted about your daughter and we... We, I was crying like a baby at my desk, and I never, I didn't, I didn't share it with anybody, but it, it got around. So, I think for me, um, writing helps me as a person, helps me process what I what I go through, and I wanna, I wanna share what uh, what I think, and if it's helpful to people, fantastic. Just dropping in, you're right on time for Health Unabashed on Healthcare Now Radio. Today we're chatting with Rush-based and board-certified in internal pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine, respectively, Dr. Hesham A. Hasabala, fellow of the American College of Physicians and author of How Not to Kill Someone in the ICU, a practical guide for a successful rotation or career in the intensive care unit. So, so let's talk about the book a little bit. No. Um, how not to kill someone in the ICU is is provocative. You're in the ICU. I know how passionate you are about getting people out um, of the ICU into uh, another wing of the hospital system and on their road to recovery and, and obviously home. 
Um, why did you feel compelled to write this book? Because it is a book where you say, look, you know, I've written this book for everybody of caregivers, family members who may have someone in the ICU. My, my advice to you is read this book because um, you're the early warning system of what's going on. You know your family member and the situation better than anybody. Um, be better equipped and informed to be their advocate while we're trying to get them out of the ICU and onto the next port of call. So it's an edgy book. It is a provocative book it, with a provocative title. Talk a little bit about what people can expect. And by the way, the book is available, as I mentioned, on Amazon. It's on Kindle. It's on paperback. It is, um, you know, it's a priceless book. It only costs $9.95, but it's a priceless book because if you consider keeping someone alive, um, I guess, I guess, uh, as they can say, um, $9.95 is a small cost to pay. So talk a little bit about what people can expect to find inside the book. So these these were this book was born out of what uh, any time I had a resident or a student come in the ICU because I I'm uh, I have faculty appointments and I do teach um, I would give them my top ten rules of the ICU these are the top ten rules that that are that are important to remember when caring for patients in the ICU and I kept saying them over and over again and I write I wrote about them on many of them on Medica uh, and I said I think. I want to put them together and then expand upon them in a in book form, uh, because I think they, I, I believe they're timeless pieces of wisdom that I've gleaned over more than two decades working in the ICU. And then I want to share with 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 everybody, with other clinicians, students, residents, nurses, doctors, um, uh, and then give uh, the the general public a sense of a glimpse of what it's like to be in the in the intensive care unit. Uh, as a as a caregiver, and then maybe it'll give them a glimpse of what it's like to be in the intensive care unit as a patient. So, the, and 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 lo and behold, it, it 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 manifested in this in this in this book. So it's just things that I want to pass along. Is this is what I learned caring for people in the ICU, and this is what I want you to know going forward. Has you talked a few times that you're 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 you're. You're a husband. You're a father. You're you're bringing your your child to soccer practice. You're you're an author. You're an ICU physician. Um, you're training residents, um, but you're also a spiritual leader of your community. You you lead people in prayer. You you offer um, uh, words of scripture. You um, you have another side to your life that is very deep and important to you. And I just want to explore that because usually when we think of, of very successful doctors, you're a very, very successful physician, you know, at a, um, a noted, noted, noted medical institution, there's the impression of, well, maybe he'll take a child to soccer practice, but you no, know, then it's off to golf on the, on Sundays, you no, know, to, to, you know, to sort of like work on his handicap and, and you're, Obviously. I do that sometimes. Okay, there you go. You're yeah. I'm glad you have a little bit of time for yourself. But I also imagine you're spending a lot of time with people in the congregation. You might be visiting the sick. You might be consulted with people in the congregation about their own loved ones who are going through medical care, getting your your counseling advice and spiritual support. You're a person who studies scripture. Um, you're you're there for people on 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 happy occasions and and. Uh, and sometimes sad moments. Um, 
Could you share with us a little bit of a snapshot of that part of your life? Because I don't think we have a lot of physicians who really sort of say, um, you know, aside from medicine and and my family, there's a whole other side to me that's very that's very deep and um, and exploring what's what's humanity's connection to the broader universe. Absolutely, I, uh, this is as important a part of my identity and who I am as being a physician. I am an ordained minister. Um, I do study scripture, like you say. Uh, it's a lot of what I do when I am uh, to and from work is to um, listen to spiritual teachings and scriptural teachings. And it's um, very important to me. I think working as a clinician in the intensive care unit, to me, I witness every single day the awesome power of the Lord's healing. Uh, I pray that I am a manifestation of his healing presence. And I, th and I think it helps ground me uh, and gives me perspective. It's very easy as a physician to, to have praise go to your head. Uh, and as soon as I got admitted to medical school, I was praying to the Lord that I never uh, think myself equal to him. It's very, it's very easy to slip into that kind of a thinking because with a snap of a finger, with a few keystrokes on my electronic medical record, I can turn someone trying to die and save them from, you know, from life-threatening illness in a matter of moments, right? And that um, power, for lack of a better word, can be intoxicating for a lot of physicians, and it's very dangerous. It's one of my rules. <laughs> Your ego can be very dangerous, and I go through a story of what happened to me uh, and a close call uh, with me and my ego, and I think having that spiritual anchor gives me perspective and keeps me honest right because i i know at the end of the day i will do i will pull i will um exert every effort to heal you to, to to help you conquer critical illness together right and at the same time i recognize that at the end of the day life and death is not in my hands it's in god's hands and i, I joke sometimes i say you know what life and death is in god's hands i just fill out the paperwork right as a physician and I, I think knowing that and being humble uh will uh, will always keep me grounded and and never let me get intoxicated with my own self you know thinking about that um uh, you know i'm thinking of the other side of the table the patient side and you know i i i listen to both sides of the conversation and often you know doctors who are are humble and honest um, they're asked a question about a disease, a situation, and um, and on the other side of the table, the the patient, the family wants an answer, and I I've always been sort of struggled and astounded by the fact that doctors, very few doctors that I meet, there are a few, but very few doctors I meet have the courage to say I don't know, I don't know, uh, uh, that's an important question I need to not only reflect on your question, I want to speak to some colleagues and reach out to get their perspective. And to your point about doctors, you know, sort of equating themselves to, uh, you know, something, you know, sort of higher than base humanity, godlike uh, or angel-like, uh, I'll, I'll bring it down a notch. Um, they want to give an answer. Well, what you have is um, um, idiopathic pain 
a nice way of saying, as you know, uh, uh, but our audience may not know, it, I don't know why you have pain, but it sounds great. Even doctors have a word for, I don't know why you have, um, you know, idiopathic. Well, you you clearly are exhibiting idiopathic pain. Um, we have to start smart. We can't we can't sound not smart. So if I don't know, it's, it's idiopathic. Yeah. yeah. So what what do you think about that? I mean, this whole aspect of I've got to sound smart. I can't say you have. I don't know why pain. I think it's <laughs> I, I think it's the doctor should always have the answer, and I and that's an expectation on the part of patients, and it's an expectation a part of a lot of physicians. I, I agree with you that uh, it's hard to say, I really don't know right now what's going on. I'm looking into it. I'm covering for this and that. I'm making sure that I cover infection in case this is an infection going on. I'm not really sure exactly. We're looking into it. We're investigating. Um, in fact, there was, an, uh, there was an article published, and then I wrote a letter to the editor, and it will be subsequently published, where they analyzed goals of care conversations between physicians and patients' families. And they noticed a lot of hedge language in the, the, the that they hedged a lot. And it was, uh, they hedged because there's a little bit of uncertainty in the diagnosis, uncertainty in the prognosis. And what, and then what I weighed in and they published it, thankfully it would be published up soon in the journal Critical Care Medicine. The reason why we use hedge language is because we were asked the unknowable. Like how, how long do they have to live? I don't know. I'll never know that question. What what do they have? Why did this happen? I don't know. Sometimes I don't know the answer to that question. So rather than that, so they're forcing us to to hedge because we that's unknowable, right? So I think I I agree with you, Gil. I think we have to have the courage to say, you know what? I don't know right now. We're looking into it. We're we're investigating, and I'm treating you to make sure that I don't miss these horrible things, right? And then we'll we are continuously reassessing that's the entire process from the moment a patient is admitted to the intensive care unit or the hospital until they're discharged it's a constant reassessment constant getting new facts and acting upon those facts and then changing course and i think it's unfair to expect that we have omnipotence or omniscience it's unfair to expect that of the of the healthcare team and um it's it's un and it's wrong for the clinician to exude omniscience or omnipotence because we don't we have neither of those things Ash, i want to say i want to say to you first of all we could go on for hours you and i uh, so much to talk about and unfortunately it's a you know it's a 26 minute show and it, it went by in a blink but i i just want to say um your medicine's renaissance person you're you're an author your book author. Um, I urge people to go visit and look at How Not to Kill Someone in the ICU, written by Dr. Heshem Hasbala. Um, you're a great ICU physician and teacher. You're compassionate. You're a person of great faith, and you share that. And obviously, um, your family um, is precious to you, and as a result, all families are precious to you. Uh, Hesh, privileged to have you on the program. And Greg, thank you so much for making this happen. Absolutely. I, I echo that, Greg. Thank you so much, Gil. Thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege to be on the show and we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. I'd love to come back. We'll do it again. And that, dear listeners, is the last note on today's Melody. A huge thanks to our worldwide audience for tuning in and our special guest, 
brush-based and board-certified in internal, pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine, respectively, Dr. Hesham A. Hasabala, fellow of the American College of Physicians and author of How Not to Kill Someone in the ICU, a practical guide for successful rotation or career in the intensive care unit. The book is available on Amazon and elsewhere. For more information or to access on-demand replays of her work at Health Unabashed, go to healthcarenowradio.com and select the Health Unabashed tab from the program's page. As a reminder, we stream live three times a day on Healthcare Now Radio, Monday through Friday at 10.30 a.m., 6.30 p.m. and 2.30 a.m. Eastern and 7.30 a.m., 3.30 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. Pacific. To keep tabs on Dr. Hasabala's work, follow him on Twitter via at H-A-H-A-S-S-A-B-A-L-A-M-D, that's H-A-Hasabala-M-D, or on the web at drhasabala.com. Stay social with Gil and me on Twitter via Gil underscore Bash, and that's B-A-S-H-E, and Greg Masters, M-P-H, and that is Greg with two Gs. Don't forget to give your tweet some zing with our hashtag HealthUnabashed. Until we meet again, pursue your passion for better health and no apologies.